to our study of Revelation chapter 21. We are continuing our study of this great chapter. And we are looking at the teaching and the doctrine concerning our future home. We are looking and studying what will be our heaven. I, I refer to it that way. And the reality is that what we are talking about is really the place where Christians will spend their eternity. Not the place where the non-Christian will spend his eternity. Obviously, that is an entirely different place. This is the place where the Christian will spend their eternity. And the Bible tells us that there will be a new heaven and a new earth And on this new earth, there will be a new central city in which we all will dwell called the New Jerusalem. So this is our dwelling place in the future. We we like to refer to it as heaven, and yet at the same time, it it really isn't heaven as I think we think of it at times. It's, It's in fact a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth will be created and we will dwell on that new earth in the new city. So all of that which is new, we can think of in a heaven kind of way. Um, Gold streets and mansions oftentimes we think of when we think about heaven. I can't wait to walk on gold streets and mansions in heaven. And we refer to it as that, but the Bible describes it as our new earthly home. And in Revelation 21, the Apostle John is getting a look at this new home. And it is a spectacular place, an incredible place for us to look at. We have already seen this place from the external view. Chapter 21, verses 9 to 21, we were were there last time and we were able to get the external view of what this city will look like. And it was... Truly amazing. If I was thinking about it this week, if you were looking to buy a house and you went around in our world and you came upon this place that is described here in Revelation chapter 21, you would rightly say of this place, that place had great curb appeal. When I looked at it from the outside, it blew all the others away. That had the best curb appeal. It would be like the most glorious of shining gems that you had ever seen in your entire life. Anything you could ever imagine, it would be beyond that. It's in the shape, as we saw, of a cube, a 1,500-mile wide length and height cube. That's the shape of perfection in the ancient days why maybe that's why God chose to create it that way and it will have the glory of God shining from it early verses of chapter 21 it says that or it says that or in verses 9 and following that God's glory illumines or shines through this place it's as if not if as if the glory is shining on it in one sense but but he is the source. He's the, the, the reality and glory is shining from Him through it. The glory of God, remember, is the sum of all of His character and His perfection. 
And we'll talk about that a little more in a moment. But God's glory illumines this place. And our future home, as we noticed last time, is going to have 12 gates, each gate being a single pearl. This is where people get the name Pearly Gates. And above each gate is the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And under the gates are 12 foundation stones, and on those foundation stones, the names of the 12 apostles, and the foundation stones will be adorned with all kinds of various gems. And so you have this bringing together of both the Old Testament covenant, the promises to Israel, the new covenant in the church, and and all of the spiritual promises that come with the new covenant that are realized through Israel. And so you have the Old Testament saints and New Testament saints coming together in this place these foundation stones each one of these gems you know is listed for us there in chapter 21 verses 19 and 20 and we looked at those last time so this is an incredible place unlike anything that we've ever seen a wall around the city 72 yards thick it looks like the clearest crystal you have ever seen you want more detail about the city than we're giving you this morning, then you can get the CD or go online or something and get the message from last week, re-listen to it, and it'll fill in some of those details. But all of that is just the external view. That's just really the outside. Of course, we saw it has streets of gold, so we got some sense of the inside. But all of that is is very exciting. It's the external view. It's the, the curbside view, if you will. But God doesn't want us to get preoccupied with just the external. God doesn't want us to look at all that and go, man, I can't wait for that. That's going to be so beautiful. I can't wait to see all that. The external is wonderful. It's very beautiful. But God didn't create it so that we would focus our minds on just that. Why? Because there's something that makes this place more beautiful than its outside. Something that makes it more beautiful than its streets of gold. I find in Christianity this disturbing response oftentimes. When asked the question about our future home or about heaven, as people talk about it, what people look forward to far too often, I hear this kind of response. And I I think if we're honest with ourselves, each one of us has probably given this kind of response. We probably have said, I look forward to walking down golden streets and seeing my relatives and friends who have died. Or maybe we say, I can't wait to ask the Apostle Paul a question. Or, or I can't wait to talk to Adam and Eve. Some of us probably will even say in our own fleshy hearts, I can't wait to smack Adam in the, right across the face. I want to know how Adam felt in the garden. I, you know, I want to talk to him. I want to talk to Elijah. I want to talk to Noah. I want to see about that. All these things probably can happen, and probably, in fact, we will be able to do there. But those things are, they all pale in comparison, folks. They all pale in comparison to anything that makes this place so heavenly. Think for it. Think about it with me just for a moment. Makes 
no sense for us to be overly excited about the outside and about the external details or other stuff. That would be like getting a present. It would be like you receiving a gift, finely wrapped gift, a, a, a gift that's wrapped in the greatest and finest of all the wrappings that you could find, made as beautiful as it can be, but you never get to the real gift on the inside. You take that gift and you set it on the shelf and you begin to admire that gift and you love that gift and you tell everybody about that gift and people come to your house and they look at the gift I got and you show them a packet. All beautifully wrapped in all the niceties, but you never get to the inside. Now, I'm not a very good gift wrapper. You just ask my wife. I'm not very creative. To me, the packaging's just going to get ripped apart. Why spend any time on it? In fact, I think one of the best inventions of the day is a gift bag. It makes it a whole lot easier. I don't get to buy a lot of gift bags because I am required to wrap gifts. Unfortunately, I I can wrap a box, and in the military, I learned how to make a nice crease and all that kind of stuff, so I get tasked with wrapping the gifts, but I don't do a very good job making them pretty. In fact, I find that the task kind of a challenge to see if I can wrap an entire gift with one piece of tape. The smallest piece of tape. It's an economy of that. It's all going to get thrown away. Why waste the tape? So so if you ever get a gift from me, you'll know why it's like that. But think about it. God has wrapped our new home in a great and wonderful wrapping. It's beautiful to just look at. You read through verses 9 through 21, you go, man, this is incredible. It's awe-inspiring to even think about, to wonder about all of that, to even imagine it. But to focus on just that would be to miss the point. Would be to miss the point of the reality of God creating it at all. And this being the eternal place of our dwelling. To focus on the externals is to miss why this place is so beautiful and so heavenly. To open, or to to not open, I should say, the beautifully wrapped gift is to miss the point of the package. Just stand on the street and admire the curb appeal of that house makes no sense if you don't ever walk in the door. So John has shown us the, the wrappings and now he's showing us the inside of the package. And it's the central focus of what's on the inside that makes this place so heavenly. Without verses 22 through verse 5, even though we're going to cover just the first few verses, without these verses, heaven is not heavenly at all. If God would have simply stopped at verse 21 and never told us about the inside, we'd wonder at all as to why we'd go there and we'd stay in the shallow reality of saying, boy, I just can't wait to see the jewels. I just can't wait to see the gold streets. We would never have an anticipation of what's on the inside and what makes heaven so heavenly. Now, I don't want us to be confused, but I want us to think about this question. If there was no Christ in heaven, would you still want to go to heaven? If there was no Christ in heaven, would you still want to go there? 
that's the, the real reality of what John is showing us here in verses 22 to 27. And I just want to read this. Notice what he says. Verse 22 of chapter 21. And I saw no temple in it that is in the city. Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. Why? Because the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed, and they shall bring their glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I don't know if you've been counting as we have been studying through this, but this is the tenth time that... The Apostle John is going to say, and the last time he's going to say, and I saw. And I saw. In our study, this is the final, final scene. It's the climax of everything. It's not just the climax of the book of Revelation. This is the climax of history. This is what God has desired from eternity past. This is what God has from Himself planned and purposed according to the counsel of His own will. And notice, God has desired, God has planned, incredibly I must add, God has purposed that He would dwell with His creation and that they would have unhindered access to Him forever and ever and ever. Without those two realities, heaven is not heaven at all. Without God being there continuously, and we see Him as we will see in verses, or in chapter 22, we will see His face with that being out being a reality and without the reality of us dwelling with God and having continual unhindered access to God, there is no heaven. Now I want us to see highlighted here a contrast of what is different from the new heaven and new earth, or the new city on the new earth, and from that of here and now. John is really laying out a contrast. He's seeing this, and he's sharing it with us only by way of contrast of what he does not see in comparison to what he has always experienced. So here we have that first. John sees that there is, notice, no temple. Verse 22, and I saw... No temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. This is very different from this earth. Throughout the wilderness wanderings of Israel, they camped and surrounded the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place of worship. The tabernacle was the place where God was. Once they came into the promised land, once God ushered them across the Jordan River and they conquered the nations and came into the promised land, earthly Jerusalem was dominated by the temple. 
on Mount Moriah as they built the temple. The temple was there overlooking the city. And that was the place where people would ascend up and sing the songs of Psalms of Ascent and, and go there and worship because that's where God was. In the days of King Solomon, except for 70 years of captivity by the Babylonian Empire, and you can read about that in Jeremiah chapter 25, except for that and until the time when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, the temple continually stood. It was there, not only as a reminder of the people of access to God, but even when God was with the people, that's where God came to be. We also know that according to Revelation chapter 11, in the days of the tribulation, there will be a rebuilt temple standing on that same site. So that the Jews, as they're drawn back to God, Go with that reminder in their minds. And then in the millennial reign of Christ, the temple described in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 will dominate the skyline of Jerusalem as we know it today. And even here, now, in our day, in the church age, even though there's no temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem for the Jews to see, but even in the church age, Paul said, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet, John looks at this new Jerusalem, there is a distinct difference. There is no temple in it. Why? Because there is no need for a place for God to temporarily dwell. There is no need for that place. There is no need for a holy of holies that only the high priest could enter. And that only once a year on the day of atonement. There is no need for that place. There is no need for man to build God a temple home. No need for a church. No need for a chapel. No need for a day of worship. There's no reason for us to come to a place of worship in the new Jerusalem. Because on the new earth and in the new city, there won't be any place where services are held. There won't be any temple. Why? Because... The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. You know what that means? It means that the very presence of God and the very reality and presence of Jesus Christ will fill the whole place. God won't confine Himself by His great power and almightiness to a place, a holy of holies, that He commanded man to build to the heart of man as the Holy Spirit indwells us. It won't be confined to those kinds of things. God will fill the entire place. They are its temple. God the Almighty, Jesus Christ the Lamb are its Holy of Holies. They are our church. God Himself is the place of worship. We will live in His presence. 
And that makes life eternal a life of worship. Did you ever think of it like that? Life eternal and what makes the glories of our eternity so glorious is the fact that life eternal will be a life of worship because we will be continuously surrounded and in the realm and presence of God Himself. Now here's a Oftentimes, sadly, what happens with us at times when we hear that kind of reality. I think this is sad, as the flesh does with us in our Christian life at times. Sometimes we hear this truth about the glories of the new heaven or the new earth, the new eternal home. And and we say sometimes secretly in our hearts, well, that doesn't sound very exciting. That doesn't sound fun. Really, that's what heaven's going to be like? You know what that tells us when we say that? What that tells us when we say that is this. We truly don't understand what true worship is. When we say in our own hearts secretly, if heaven's going to be a place where we simply continually and earnestly from our heart worship God, that doesn't sound very exciting. That simply tells us and ought to be a picture for us to let us know that we just don't understand what worship is. You know why? Because we're so tied to this earth. We're so tied here. You see, if we grasp the fullness of life in and with Christ now, if we understood what Paul prayed for the Colossian believers, that they would fully understand their their union with Jesus Christ here and now and live that out, if we grasp the fullness of that, if we truly understood that, then we would fully anticipate what life will be when we are actually with Christ. We would long for it. But the very fact that we think in those ways shows us that we don't live as we ought because we love it here too much. We love it here way too much. We want fun. We want the fun of this earth to go with us. We want the feelings of this earth to to enter with us into the glories of heaven because we think that the feelings, the good feelings of here and now will somehow enhance our time for all eternity. We want the pleasures, we want the leisures of this world to follow along with us. John says, no, it's not going to be like that. Our new home will be better than anything we have here for we will talk with God like we've never talked with God Here we are led with the Spirit. Here we talk with God in a prayerful communion with God. Here we trust Christ for our salvation. And we continually are entrusting trusting His promises. But our new home will not be like that. There will not be a place where God temporarily dwells. We will be in a place where God dwells forever. And we will worship Him as God forever in His very John says, God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, each one of us will 
be like Adam was in the garden. We will walk with God and talk with God. Freely. In his presence. I was listening to. Dr. R.C. Sproul this week in a Q&A that he did at his current Ligonier conference, and someone asked the question, well, if heaven is all worship, isn't that going to be boring? I loved his answer. <laughs> he sat back in his chair, an aged old man. He said, what a stupid question. <laughs> I love that. I'd never have the guts to say that, but he did. He said, listen, I can guarantee you this. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, the day you wake up in hell, you'll long for a boring heaven. We can't even imagine what it will be like because we live here. But When John sees it, he is awed by the very fact that there is no place where access to God is hindered because God is the temple. So everything we do, everything we say will be worship to God. And then he gives a second contrast. Notice verse 23. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it because the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb. Here and now we are dependent upon the sun. We are dependent upon the moon, the celestial bodies that God has created and hung in the heavens as we know them. We need the sun for light. We need the sun for life. We cannot survive without the sun. Without the sun we die. And the moon, it just does what it's supposed to do. It reflects the sun. It it is is the mirror, really, of the sun for the night. So the moon does that. And the moon, by God's design, determines and initiates the water cycles by which we survive. It regulates the tides of the ocean as God has designed it. So without the sun and the moon on this earth, you and I quickly die. The new heaven and the new earth will be completely different. And it's obvious from verse 23 that we will not be dependent upon the sun or the moon. Notice it doesn't say that there will not be a sun or a moon. It just says that the city has no need for them. This place has no need for them and has no need for the light from them. Why? Because the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, when it says its lamp is the Lamb, it's not saying, and the city's lamp is the Lamb. You know what it's saying? It's saying the glory of God's lamp is the Lamb. The city will be illumined by the glory of God, and the one who's the lamp of that glory is the Lamb of God. I love that. There's the glory of God again. It began in chapter 21 as the the glory of God was coming down uh, with this city. Right? In verse 10, the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. That's simply saying again that God is there, Christ is there. It is God and 
and the glory's lamp, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, they are there. They are both there. This is the glory of God. Again, this is the very sum and perfection of God's character in all of its totality. They are the source of the light of this place. Christ, the lamp of the glory of God, reminding us really in some ways of the Time when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he peeled back his flesh just for a moment, and Peter saw the glory of God shining from him, and Peter falls on his face and wants to just build some tents there. They can stay there forever. For Peter, that was enough. A glimpse at the glory of God was enough for Peter to say, I don't want to go anywhere else. This is the place. Let's just camp here forever. Just think of the glory of God everywhere. This is the glory of God shining and the lamp being the lamb. Both are needed. Both are necessary. This is the dual shared responsibility of the Godhead. And the the Spirit is there too. But where His interaction is in this, we're not told. And yet, this is that responsibility in order to illumine the earth. The glory of God the Father and to God the Father through God the Son to us who are redeemed. Isaiah 60 and verse 19 said it this way. The sun shall no more be the light by day. Neither for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But God shall be your everlasting light. And the God of your glory. So verse 24 says that same thing. And the nation shall walk by its light. By what? What's the it? Glory. The nation shall walk by the glory of the light of God and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. It's exactly what Isaiah says. The, the sun by day, the moon by night shall not be your light. It will be God. He will be your light and he will be your glory. And so in the new earth, on the new Jerusalem, we'll walk by by His light. Walk's just the direction of life. It's the, the direction and goal of all of life, of all of our eternity, will be to walk in and according to the glory of God. We will walk in the glory of God, and we will walk according to the glory of God, and the glory of God will be the continual goal of all of life. Like Moses. He went up on the mountain and he met with God and his face shined afterwards. He was in the presence of God and the glory of God was reflecting from him even dimly. So we too, it says here, will be the very constant reflection of his glory continuously. In other words, we'll live in sinless perfection always. Who knows what that'll be like? I, 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 I can't even imagine that. I don't know five minutes with sinless perfection. I don't know one minute with sinless perfection. I remember years ago doing a funeral for a dear friend who was in the church. He died and I asked him, I said, his name was Fred. I said, Fred, as he's on his dying bed and I... I said to him, I said, what do you look forward to the most when, when you think about heaven? 
And he said, the thing that I look forward to the most is being without sin. Now, he had an understanding of the glories of heaven. To be without sin. It wasn't, I, I look forward to walking the streets of gold. It wasn't, I look forward to any of those kinds of things. It was, look, I just look forward to the reality of this. That I can walk always in the light of the glory of God. Sinless perfection emanating. Reflecting from my life always and never having any kind of hindrance to that at all. Notice. Verse 24, apparently the administration of the earthly eternal rule of God and the Lamb who are there will come through their appointment, Christ's appointment of perfect kings so that throughout all the earth there will be the right reflection of the right glory of God. There's no no sinfulness anywhere for some reason and through the administration of his kingdom he will have kings of the earth. And they'll bring their glory. Notice verse 26. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. So everybody, everywhere, whoever's part of the new earth. I think this really seems to indicate to us that those, there, there are saints of the Old Testament, obviously. There are saints in the church age. Obviously, we already know they'll dwell in the new Jerusalem. And yet there seems to be this appearance of believers who dwell outside the new Jerusalem on the new earth, perfect in themselves, who are reflecting the glory of God even outside of this, because the kings who are administrating the eternal kingdom of Christ in the uh, in the new Jerusalem or from the new Jerusalem who go out into the nations are bringing the reflected glory of the nations into the new Jerusalem. There seems to be, maybe, possibly, that even these millennial saints, as I like to think of them here, live outside. It's kind of interesting. This week I was talking with Debbie. I told her I was going to mention her name this morning. I said, I'll try not to embarrass you. We were talking this week about this very point, and and uh, I think a lot of us are like Debbie. We'd like to think of this as, well, we'll have our, our place in the city, and in the glories of heaven, we'll have a little country home out here in the outside city. No, that's not what it says. It says there will be those, it seems, who dwell outside of that, but we we dwell in the city. We're in the New Jerusalem. And so it seems to me that the millennial kingdom saints will live outside the city. While the Old Testament saints and the church age saints will live in the city. And yet the administration of the earth's rule will be through the hierarchy of the rulers. These perfect kings. No condos in the country. Sorry. No vacation homes in heaven. In fact, when it says, I go to prepare a place for you, I, some people think, I go to prepare many mansions. Ooh, I want a big house. I wonder what my mansion looks like. That's not what the original language says. It's just rooms. It's just simply trying to say there's a place for everybody. God has enough room for everybody. Notice verse 25. It will be in complete peace and complete security forever. Notice verse 25. And in the daytime... For there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be 
closed. This is speaking of complete security in the place where we dwell. I love this fact. And I think sometimes, oftentimes, we don't understand it because we don't live in ancient times. We read that and go, yeah, so big deal. But this is to say that the gates in the ancient cities were were security systems in ancient times. When the city... When it came night, the city closed its gates. It it didn't let anybody in. Well, we don't have gates usually here. Some people do in gated communities, but, but we have locks. We have alarm systems. We have security systems to keep people out. And all John is saying is this. In our new home, there's no need for a security system. The gates never close. There's no need to block off the city and make it a secure place. Why? Because there are no criminals there. There's no dangerous people. There's no sinful things happening there. Why? Because there's no sin. There's never night and it's never closed. A place of true rest, a place of true safety. Notice what he says in verse 27. There's nothing. Verse 25, it's always daytime. The gates are never closed. Verse 27, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. Don't get confused. He's not saying that those kinds of things dwell on the new earth and they're out there and there's a possibility of them coming into it. No, that's just a way of saying, listen, none of that will come into it. Why? Because none of that exists anymore. There's no need to have it closed off. Why? Because none of this is even happening. Nothing like this will ever even come upon it. What a final contrast. In this city, on this New earth, no sin will ever come. No sin at all. You think about it, when you think about Scripture, when God created Eden, when He created paradise on earth, the Garden of Eden, a perfect place, paradise on earth, all of the perfection of Eden... All that he tells us in his creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And yet, Genesis chapter 3, sin strikes. And when sin strikes, disaster happens. But here, this is the final contrast. Here, it's made absolutely plain to us that no such possibility will ever exist. It cannot happen. It will not happen anymore. Not only are its gates never closed, not only is it never night, but nothing unclean, nothing of any kind of sinfulness, nothing of any kind of practice of an abomination to God, nothing of any kind of falsehood whatsoever will ever come into it. Why? Because it's a perfect place. It's a confirmed perfect place never to have sin ever enter into it. Nothing unclean. Why? Because sin has been completely destroyed. Satan and all of his demons and all who have rejected Christ are gone. No one who practices abomination, no one who practices lying are there because they've been cast where? Into the eternal lake of fire. It's over. 
It's done. It's complete. The only ones who dwell here are the redeemed. End of verse 27. Only those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. So we don't need to be confused. There are no unbelievers roaming the earth waiting to try to find some kind of way to dig tunnels under the wall and get into the eternal kingdom. That will not happen. They do not even exist there. They're in the fires of hell. So John is simply saying to all of us in a warning kind of way. The only way for anyone to be here in the new Jerusalem. The only way for anyone to have access here is through Jesus Christ alone. That's it. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The name to be written in the Lamb's book of life. What a glorious exterior our new home has. But what an even greater interior. God and the Lamb are its light. And without Christ, without faith in Christ, there is no access. In fact, there is no heaven. The eternal home for those who reject Christ, is not this place. Their place is the lake of fire. This is the home of believers and only believers. And forever we will worship as we have been created to do forever and ever and ever. We have the external view, an internal view, Next time we'll look at the eternal view. The eternal view. So this morning we celebrate Jesus Christ. We celebrate the access point. Point of access. Not the pearly gates. That's not the point of access into the glories of heaven. People say, when I get to the pearly gates, I'm going to ask Peter. Listen, Peter's not going to be there at the pearly gates. You don't have to ask Peter anything. There'll be an angel at the gate. Like I said last time, maybe saying, hey, how was your trip? But you won't be asking Peter anything. Why? Because the access point to the glories of heaven is Jesus Christ. The access point to the glories of heaven is faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who offered his body as an eternal sacrifice, so that those who believe in him might have eternal life in him. Only those who believe. No one else. So we pray that that is our heart this morning. Let's bow together as we prepare for our communion time, Lord. There's nothing more true than your word. And we can try to do our best to explain all that you have said here. And by your spirit, those things are applied to our heart and our life. But if we sit here this morning and we have denied Jesus Christ and we believe simply the facts about Jesus Christ, but we really haven't embraced Him in our heart, then we are still on the road to hell. 
There is no access to heaven. There is no decision point being made at the pearly gate whereby one can say, how good are you? And if your works are good enough, you'll be allowed to enter in. There is no decision there. The decision is made at the cross. Are you going to reject Jesus Christ? Or are you going to believe? But without Jesus Christ, there is no heaven. Which one of us would ever say, if Christ were not in heaven, I'd still want to go there? The only place we ought to want to go who truly know Jesus Christ is wherever He's at. And if He's there in the New Jerusalem, as Your Word clearly tells us that He is, then that's heaven. That's where I want to be. Lord, thank you for these things. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who we celebrate now and in whose name we pray. Amen.